great to be back. And uh, be back, I mean, were you gone? Yeah, I retired last year. And uh, here I am. Um, again, I'm Steve Friesen, one of the retired pastors here at Grace. And I am... S- Are there more? Yeah, more to come too, probably. Well, anyway, I am just thankful for the opportunity to to pinch hit for Pastor Jack again. And uh, as we all know, he's managing his family under really hard circumstances. And uh, you all know that Courtney, his wife, had brain surgery last month. And uh, we continue to lift her up as she recovers. And I know it's just not easy. And uh, Jack, I just want to say thank you for your faithfulness and just opening God's word week after week. We all know that takes a lot of grace and a lot of energy, and Jack does it joyfully, but many of us don't know how much duress that you've been serving under, and I'm just so thankful that you have a chance to receive um, when you normally are giving. It's not an uncommon thing for pastors to minister to their flocks out of the hard things and the hard lessons that God teaches us in the middle of our stories. And I think it's the same for any of us. Would you say you've learned more through the hard things or through the easy things of your lives? Yes, tough. So today is the tough lessons of a good God from the life of Joseph. And I just, I'm so grateful that this man's story is in our word. And I want to focus this morning on the time that I have on, on him, Joseph, a man whom God allowed to suffer greatly so that he could be used magnificently for God's story and a larger story of salvation in the world, larger than Joseph could have ever dreamed. Um, Pastor Chuck Swindoll, author as well, in his book, Joseph, a Man of Integrity and Forgiveness, relates a story about a young lady who's who sang a solo in front of a large audience. She did a great job. Her vocal technique was beautiful, and, and uh, her tone was excellent. Her range was significant. And interestingly, the man who had written the song that she sang was in the audience listening to her sing. And so when the, when the lady was finished singing, the person sitting beside the composer leaned over and said, well, what do you think of her? And uh, this composer said softly, she will be really great when something happens to break her heart. Think about that. That may sound like an insensitive comment, but the truth is that suffering has a way of refining and beautifying our souls. A lot of us, when we suffer, what's our first response? Ah, oh, why is this happening to me? We, you know, we complain, God, or we go, God, I'm done with you. We doubt God. We just, it's really hard. But when our hearts are tender and open to him and we go through these hard things, we trust him with our problems, we can look back on our struggles and see how he uses them to refine us and to purify us and to mature us. And that's a, that's a good thing. And then we can become life-giving people in God's world. So Joseph's story is recorded, as you know, in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And it's the last 14 chapters of the book of Genesis that tell Joseph's story. Now, you know, some people are just mentioned one time, just their name in passing, 
So when God gives 14 chapters of the Bible for one man's story, he's just saying, pay attention. This is significant, what I'm doing in his life. This is something for you and me. So let me just overview Joseph's life. You all, many of us, if you've grown up in church, you know his story. If you haven't, it's an amazing read, and I encourage you to read from Genesis 39 all the way to the end. Joseph's the grandson of a famous man named Abraham. He's the great-grandson, I take it back. And he was born around 1800 B.C. His family was divinely chosen but deeply troubled. It was a blended family. Joseph had one dad, Jacob, and there were four moms in this household. Joseph was son number 11, born when Jacob, his daddy, get this, 91 years old. How'd you like to grow up with your great-grandfather as your dad? Joseph became his daddy's uniquely loved son because he was the firstborn son of Jacob's favored wife, his second wife, Rachel, whom he truly loved. And so from Haran, where he was born, to Canaan, the family moved to the land that God had promised to give them forever. When Joseph was six years old, and though he was his father's favorite, Joseph was his ten older brother's least favorite. Well, so the next 11 years of Joseph's life were spent up learning, spent learning to herd sheep with his bully brothers and who one day engineered the sudden sale of this now 17-year-old pesky younger brother to slave traders headed to Egypt. They got rid of him because they hated him. So in Egypt, he was a slave for 10 long years. He served in Potiphar's house. And then it gets worse. He's thrown in jail for three years after that. And then in a scene that only God could orchestrate dramatically in 24 hours, he's elevated from the prison to the palace because he's the only one that can interpret the king Pharaoh's dreams. And Joseph becomes the prime minister of Egypt at the age of 30, from the prison to the palace. And then he serves and administers the rest of his life over the country of Egypt. There are seven years of incredible bounty, which the Pharaoh's dreams, God gave, which God gave to him, we're talking about, followed by seven years of terrible, terrible famine. And during that time, Joseph is administering the resources of the country. And God's amazing plan is that he would send Joseph ahead of time to save his family, who come down from Canaan to Egypt because that's where groceries are. There's no food anywhere else. 22 years after they sold him and thought they were done with him, Joseph's brothers are bowing in front of him to buy grain except they don't know it's their brother. That's for another day, that story. But, you know, even though Joseph didn't tell his brothers right away who he was, eventually he revealed himself to them as their long-lost brother, and they're totally shocked, they're upset, they're terrified, they're incredulous. But then he says something like, come down here and live with me. There's five more years of famine. So he brings his father's household, all his brothers and all their kids and he puts them up in Egypt, gives them a great place. Pharaoh says, welcome. So they stay there. Years pass, Joseph becomes weak and old. But without a shred of bitterness in his heart, only forgiveness and grace, Joseph dies in royal Egyptian splendor at the age of 110, 93 years after entering the land as a slave. 
And Joseph's embalmed body stays in Egypt for another 300 plus years until the time God would deliver his people Israel at the Exodus. Remember that? And so at the Exodus, Joseph's mummified body is carried out of Egypt through the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness into the land of Canaan where it's finally buried 500 years after he had been kidnapped and taken to Egypt as a slave. Isn't that sweet? Well, I don't know if it's sweet, but it's interesting. This morning, let's look at Joseph's life from the perspective of what God did and put him through to prepare him for his mission. There's a man named A.W. Tozer uh, who said, it's doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. That is profound. God in his goodness puts Joseph through some really hard tests, tough tests, to prepare him for a tough assignment. And though it doesn't at the outset feel that way, there was never any doubt that God's hand was on his man as he was orchestrating this intense training and difficult path to get his man ready to fulfill his role on the world stage without faltering. The reason he could do that was because he was tested with four tough tests. This is really encouraging to me. Some of us may be here today going through some of the hardest things that we've ever faced, and we're obviously asking why or what's going on. Maybe we're saying, God, do you know what you're doing to me? We may have a marriage that's not working out. There may be some shocking exposure or something we've tried to cover up over the years. We may have lost someone really important to us, a spouse, a child, a parent. A, f a relative. It may be a terrible diagnosis. We all know these hard things, failure at work, being blamed for something we didn't do. Maybe it's misunderstanding. Somebody's attacking our character. Maybe it's an alienation, a problem that arises between friends. We may be just asking God, are you really, is your hand really on the steering wheel of my life? Do you know or care about what's going on? And this, this word in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8 and 9 is profound. God is speaking, and it's familiar to us. He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. I don't think the same way you do. Nor are your ways my ways. For as high as the heavens are, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. God's ways are the highways. His ways are higher, they're better, they're more profound. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts, he says. What does that mean? It just means we can't begin to understand everything that God is planning or doing in our lives. And our job is not to understand what he's doing, it's to, and not to fight what he's doing, but just to face and embrace whatever God puts in our path to pass those tests with God's help so that we're ready to serve his purposes for our lives. So I want to see how Joseph did that in Genesis 38 and 39. So here are the four, four tough tests that Joseph had to face in order to be prepared for God's tough assignment in the world. And maybe you'll identify with one or all. Here's the first one. The first test that we see in Joseph's life is the test of personal rejection. Personal rejection. Relational pain. This is really hard. Genesis 37, 
26 to 28. Joseph has visited his brothers on a mission from dad to see how they're doing, and they decide to kill him. How's that? Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. For he is our brother, our own flesh. Let's be nice to him and just sell him. <laughs> Don't kill him, just sell him. Oh. So then Midianite traders passed by and they pulled Joseph up, lifted Joseph out of the pit, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. I wonder what they did with that money. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. This is personal rejection. And it hurts because it's family, right? It's your brothers who hate your guts. I mentioned that Joseph, why did they hate him? Well, because his daddy liked him better than all of them. Because he was his son of his old age. They, the reason, another reason, and, and daddy made him special, gave him that coat and all that. The other thing was Joseph was having dreams from God about being exalted over his brothers, and he was fearless, maybe proud in sharing those dreams with his brothers. And they did not like the fact that he said, you're going to bow down to me one day. You know, and they hated him worse for that. So the early verses of Genesis 37 just describe that hatred. And, and so I don't know if Joseph's dreams for his life, what he had for his dreams, maybe it would become a shepherd or whatever, but I doubt being forcibly sent away from your family and becoming a slave are on his to-do list. Uh, his goals for life? I want to visit another country as a slave? No. But in Genesis 42, 21, we find out a little bit of the backstory of how Joseph behaved when he was being sold. Genesis 42, 21 his brothers are feeling bad about their actions, and they're talking among themselves. This is when they're in front of Joseph. They don't know that he understands. And they say, truly, we are guilty concerning our brother, because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. What are, what are they talking about? This is when he, they pull him out of the pit, put chains on him, and took him away to Egypt. And what is Joseph doing? He is pleading, please don't do this to me. You know, I'm your brother. We know. <laughs> he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Boy, what a cold, hard scene that was. Do you have anybody in, the, in your circle who hates your guts like this? Someone who thinks you're crazy? Somebody who'd like to see you fail or like to see you disappear? Somebody who would jump at the chance to hurt you? Uh, somebody who's angry attacks or cold shoulders sends your anxiety, our anxiety levels way through the roof. It's like this personal rejection test is really hard. But it's necessary to go through this if we're going to be used by God. If I think everybody has to like me, I'm setting myself up to be afraid of their negative responses. And I can't be really used by God. Everybody God uses gets opposed. I graduated from high school in Japan, 1968, international school. And I had a great education. I had classmates from all over the world. We had teachers uh, who were not committed Christians. And they didn't believe God's word was real or true. 
And so anybody who spoke out uh, for Jesus or defended the Bible or anything like that, you got put down pretty, pretty bad. And I was really uh, fearful in class. I was afraid to voice my beliefs because I thought I would be uh, hounded and embarrassed or ridiculed by my teachers and my peers. And so, you know, you, it may not even be personal rejection, just the thought that you might not be uh, welcomed by the people around you is enough to get us off track. But rejection is important. Jesus, the Bible tells us, knows personal rejection. It was part of his training, too. Isaiah said of him in 53, Isaiah 53.3, about Jesus, he was despised and rejected by men. Did you see the word despised and rejected? That was his assignment. And he was a, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He knew the sorrow, the heartache of people not liking to be with you. When, when Jesus came to the earth and grew up and entered his ministry, his family thought he was crazy. Jealous Jewish religious leaders mercilessly attacked him. They called him a demon-possessed glutton. They called him a drunkard. They called him friend of sinners. They did not like him. And why would the Heavenly Father allow his son to go through this? Why did he permit it to Joseph? Why would he allow us to go through those kind of things? And but one of the reasons, we don't know them all, but one of the reasons may be that the pain of personal rejection would tenderize us toward the pain of other people who are oppressed. It also connects us to the heart of God. Who feels the most rejected in the universe? It's God. And when you, you and I are rejected, we feel God's pain. It's like, oh, now you get what I go through every day, 24-7. We, our hearts are knit with God in a special way when we suffer rejection and bring it to him. But Joseph, not only did he experience the tough test of personal rejection, he also faced the tough test of Hard service, hard service. Genesis 39.1 tells us, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt in Potiphar, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him. Get that? He is property. He is a slave. Bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. I'm going to use this guy. The hard test of service involved major loss and many adjustments. And, and interestingly, Genesis does not, God's word does not tell us what life was like for Joseph as a slave of Potiphar. It just says God blessed him there. His hand was on him. But he lost everything. He lost all his rights. He was humbled. Uh, he probably didn't speak any Egyptian to start with, probably. And yet he had to figure out what was expected of him. He had to probably be up at dawn and, you know, work till dark, harsh supervisors. He knew what it was like to be a despised Hebrew slave. Joseph probably developed thick calluses on his hands from serving and working way outside his comfort zone. Maybe he cleaned toilets. I don't know. What's your least favorite thing? Joseph did that. He learned to speak Egyptian. He learned to meet the needs of his master. He learned new skills. He learned that though God had humbled him, God had not abandoned him. 
And the service of Potiphar, the hard service of Potiphar is preparation for the service of Pharaoh. It's preparation for the service of his own people. It's preparation for serving God. The Bible says in Mark 10, 45, Jesus, about Jesus, who said about himself, not even the Son of Man came to be served, but to serve and to give his life. Wait a minute. Give his life as a ransom for many. Learning to serve people who appreciate us and tip us well? Well, that's one thing. But learning to be at the beck and call of those who don't treat us well, that's another thing. That's a hard test. No appreciation. And yet God is there, blessing. It's counterintuitive, but we need the hard test, the test of hard service. Maybe you're going through something like this. You feel like a slave who's lost all freedoms. We just had our younger son, Luke, and his wife, and three-year-old Winnie and 10-month-old Brighton with us over the weekend. Such a sweet time. I'm thinking of a mom with toddlers. Man, that's like hard service. You're on call 24-7. You may or may not get a night's sleep. You know, Bobby and I, we forget what it was like when we were young and the kids were young. But that's not easy. Or maybe it's taking care of elderly parents who require sacrificial time and attention on the other end of the spectrum. Or maybe it's an unreasonable boss. Or maybe it's just trying to help some ungrateful teen work through something, sort life out. Maybe it's being a dad who's being asked to give up something to serve the family. It's, maybe it's like being plugged into a ministry here at Grace that's really hard. It's challenging. It's underappreciated, putting you in difficult circumstances. It'd be easy to throw in the towel, wouldn't it? We've got to remember, God intentionally trains his children with hard jobs to develop strength and gracious humility. One of the childhood maturity tasks for parents to teach their kids is doing hard things, right? Dad's job is, it's not going to kill you, son. Mom's job is, oh, don't be so hard on him, right? <laughs> now, maybe you're a mom and you have to be tough, too. That's okay. It's not going to kill you. That's the famous line. Joseph had to face not only personal rejection and hard service, he also had to face the tough test of sexual enticement, temptation of a sexual nature. Now, we wouldn't talk about it except it's in the Bible. It's very in the Bible in Joseph's story. Genesis 39, 7 to 12 tells us about the test. And the interesting thing about this test is it comes because he succeeded in the test of hard service. And his master promoted him to manager of the entire estate. Joseph became somebody of responsibility. He had strong character. And because he had worked so hard, his physique was really amazing. And he caught the eye and the heart of Potiphar's wife, who then unashamedly solicits Joseph for sexual favors. And this is what it says in Genesis 39, 6 and 7. Now, Joseph was handsome in form, in form, that's his physique and appearance. It came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph and she said, lie with me. Sexual enticement comes knocking on his door. 
And we can do a lot to avoid exposing ourselves to the incredible onslaught of sensual messages from our culture. It's, we know what it's like out there. Obey your thirst. That's a good thing, they say, but no. And God obviously created us with a capacity to be interested in sexual things. I mean, he designed us to be bonded in spirit and soul and body with our spouses. Sexually in, sexual intimacy is from God. That's a gift. It's a beautiful thing. But this connection, God says, is blessed. You want to know when it's life-giving? It's in the tender commitment of heterosexual marriage alone. That's God's standard. Now, have we failed it? Yeah. But that doesn't change what God's heart is and what his design is. And God knows that any other arena, relationship or time, sexual bonding is actually going to be destructive. And that will grieve him a lot. And many of us know what that's like. Hebrews 13, chapter 13, verse 4 says, Let marriage be held in honor by all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. What does that mean? That means don't have sex with someone before you're married or with someone else after you're married, other than your spouse. God judges the sexually immoral. That's fornication. God judges the adulterous. That's sex with someone outside of marriage when you're married. Well, this isn't designed to make us feel like bad. It's just the truth of God. What is life-giving? We need to know that. Where do you build the fire? In the fireplace, not in the middle of the living room. So God is giving us his guide. Well, so Joseph is faced with a real sexual temptation. And uh, this is really incredible to see how he handles it. Because if we've messed up, and Joseph doesn't mess up here, but if we have, there is hope and healing sexually because of Hebrews 4.15, 16 tells us, the new, in the New Living, it says, This high priest of ours, that's Jesus, understands our weaknesses. Amen. Thank you. For he faced all of the same temptations we do. Really? Yes. Yet he did not sin. So, let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God, who knows how to handle it, and give strength to those when we're going through. So, let, therefore, we... We will receive, there we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it. Here's how Joseph responds. Now, if you and I were rejected by our family and expelled from our homeland, we're living in slavery, even if we knew God's standards, maybe we could make a strong case that, well, if God's not taking care of me, I'm going to take care of myself. Finally, someone thinks I'm awesome after all the rejection I've been through. What would it hurt to a little taste some pleasure here? After all I've been through, God would understand. But that's not how Joseph responds to the test. So in the first two tests of personal rejection and hard service, we don't really have any record of how Joseph responded. But in this test, we get a window. And uh, I love what he says to this master's wife who's trying to seduce him. He says in 38, 30, uh, chapter 39, verse 8 and 9, Behold, with me here, my master doesn't concern himself with anything in the house, and he's put all that he owns in my charge. And there's no one greater in this house than I, and he's withheld nothing from me except you, 
because you are his wife. How could then I do, how then could I do this great evil and sin against God? Joseph said, I'm not going there because I don't want to betray my master's trust. I'm committed to honoring sacred boundaries, even though you are trying to cross them. Though Potiphar's wife is shamelessly putting her passion over, over her loyalty to her husband, maybe it's a bad marriage, you know. Joseph is labeling her proposal, get this, great evil, not a good time. He labels it for what it is. And as she uncovers her body, he uncovers his soul. He declares his commitment to God publicly. He says, saying yes to you, man, would not only be betraying your husband, it would be sinning against my God, and I'm not going there. Joseph, wow. This is incredible faith on the part of a man who could make the case that God didn't care. And finally, someone nice did. But to Joseph, the pleasure of God is worth more than the temporary smiles and embrace of a woman who's hot after his body. Well, interestingly, she didn't take no for an answer. Our text in 39.10 says, and as she spoke to Joseph day after day, Day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. And I noticed that day after day. It's like, what? Not just one time? No. You could say no once, overcome, but then day after day, the same temptation? Wow, this was intense. Sometimes it's relentless. And the enemy is just like after us. And it's so encouraging. Repeat, repeat, repeat. No, no, no. One day, she crafted a trap. You know the story. It was a setup. Everybody else is assigned outdoor jobs. Joseph's the only one inside. He's no dummy. I think he smelled the perfume. His system is signaling a warning as he's hurrying through his to-do list. Suddenly, polished fingernails are reaching out with gripping, dripping lust and pulling him into an unholy embrace. Red-lined lips are demanding, lie with me. This is danger. And what do you do in that situation? You don't say, God, would you just take this temptation away from me right now? The biblical response is run, flee. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee immorality. Leave your coat if you have to. It's better to lose something you own than to give up your integrity you can replace the coat, but it's harder to replace a clean conscience before God. Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to stumble, throw it, gouge it out. Gouge it out. Then what do I do with my eye? And then he said, throw it from you. It's like, how far can you throw your right eye? What is he talking about? This is hyperbole to say, be as drastic as necessary when it comes to sin, especially sex, sexual sin. So whatever it takes, run, run. And uh, it's not easy, but Joseph left his coat in her hands and ran outside in his underwear. Yeah, he faced the test with a few less clothes on. You think, well, there'd be some award, some reward, 
for passing that test, maintaining your integrity. But, you know, you pass the test of sexual enticement, and guess what? Another one comes right on its heels. Unjust imprisonment. What? Unjust imprisonment. So, to cover her waywardness, Potiphar's wife lies to her husband when he gets home. Says, he tried to rape me, and he, when, he, when I screamed, he left his coat in my hands and ran away. And he bought her story. Nobody asked Joseph for his his side. And so Joseph gets thrown in prison, 39:19. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled, and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. So there you are for a crime you did not commit. This is unjust imprisonment. It's God's last test before promoting Joseph to the palace. And we don't know all that he endured in prison, but Psalm 105 gives us a little picture. Verses 18 and 19 say this. His, speaking of Joseph, his feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. There he is, neck in an iron collar. Maybe you can identify, okay. Maybe it's you've lost measure, a measure of freedom that you've earned by being faithful in hard circumstances, and then the bottom falls out even worse. Maybe the chains that you're going through aren't iron. Maybe they're plastic drip lines, IV. Or maybe it's Facebook posts or wrongly, that wrongly assume that you're guilty when you're not. Why does God do this to a man? God seems bent on making his life so hard. And uh, I think God's training methods are so painful sometimes. And he often takes his time unveiling why those good purposes are there eventually. But there are three responses from Joseph that I think are just critical, and I won't explain them a lot. But the first response, how do you handle these tough tests? The first one is embrace the presence of Jesus. Countless times in Genesis 39, we read the Lord was with Joseph. And I can imagine he's opening his heart saying, Lord, help me know where you are in the middle of this hard test. And if that's you, that's what you pray. Show me your presence. Help me perceive your presence in this hard place. Let me know you are here. Then, Joseph, after that, Second response is he draws on the power of the Lord. Watch God work. So in the middle of the test is the best place to experience the power and grace of God. In the middle of it. And let me see your power. That's the second request. And the third response is Joseph trusted the plan of the Lord. I do not know what you're doing, but I trust you. Please help me not to get bitter. And we know, Romans 8, 28, that God causes all things, all things, all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Thirteen years ago, 2008, one of our young adults here at Grace, some of you knew him. His name is Doug Pierce. 
Back then, he was a 24-year-old who got diagnosed with testicular cancer. It spread to his brain. Doug battled tough test after tough test. He, he almost lost his foot in the process of chemo and infections and all that. And somebody who watched Doug suffer through chemo, through radiation, stem cell transplants, seizures, compromised immune system, sore mouth, a throat that's made it hard to eat, even swallow. They emailed Doug's folks, Jim and Liz, and they said this. Over this past week or so, we've watched Olympics 20, 2008 as fit athletes compete for gold medals. We've watched parents in the stands hold their breath as their sons and daughters try to try to get the gold. Some have, some have failed terribly. Few of us have watched our child compete as you have in the ultimate event of life, uh, the ultimate event of all, life. It's occurred to me, this person writes to Jim and Liz, that as difficult as it is to watch Doug battle cancer, we know because of Jesus what the outcome will be. There will be victory for Doug. There's no uncertainty as we watch from the stands. Doug has the gold because he's doing what Hebrews 12 encourages us to do. Since we are surrounded by such a cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance. The race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Would you join me, as Joseph did, as Doug and his parents did, in embracing the presence of God, drawing on the power of Jesus, and trusting the plan of a good God, even though he tests us in hard ways? Let's pray. Our merciful and amazing King, we praise you. you your hand is on our lives. Those of us who belong to you have the assurance that you take everything that you allow or send into our lives and bring good out of it. You're a specialist in that. Only you could do that. Help us respond humbly to the tough tests that you put in our way. And help us to believe that you have a plan. Whether we'll see it now or in eternity, we don't know. But let us submit, keeping our eyes on Jesus, who ran the race and accomplished the goal of saving us. When it comes to salvation, somebody always suffers. Joseph did, you did, Jesus. And if you call on us to suffer for the sake of somebody else being saved, so be it. We embrace you. In Jesus' name, amen.